Uh, we're so glad that you're visiting with us this morning. Uh, tell you a little bit about ourselves here at Old Lane if you're visiting. This is a loving truthful congregation, one that seeks to do God's will in all things. But you know, sometimes you can stand up so straight you fall over. This is not that kind of church. Also, you can be so open-minded that your brain falls out. This is not that kind of church. So just know that we are doing our best to stay out of ditches and uh, to do what God would have us to do. We're glad that you're here this morning. I want to start this morning with a multiple choice question. Here it is. If you could choose to be one of these, which would it be? The wealthiest person in the world, the most famous movie star in the world, the greatest athlete in the world, or a starving orphan in Africa? If you could choose one of those, which would it be? Now, my guess is most of you struggled with A, B, or C, but not D. Uh, most people in our world will not choose D. They'd have a hard time choosing between A, B, or C, perhaps. Let's reword it a little bit. Let's say this. If you choose A, B, or C you can no longer be a Christian. But if you choose D, you can be. It's a question of worth. How much is Jesus worth? And that's what really the theme of Mark chapter 14 is, our text for this morning. Again, if you're visiting with us, we're going through the His Word book, devotional book. The whole congregation is. And so every week we take a section of Scripture and it culminates on me preaching on one of those sections on Sunday morning. And this morning we're looking at Mark chapter 14. And if you look there, you look at verses 1 and 2, it reads, Now the Passover and unleavened bread were two days away, and the chief priest and the scribes were seeking how to seize him by stealth and kill him. For they were saying, not during the festival, otherwise there might be a riot of the people. So, to the chief priest and the scribes, how much was Jesus worth? Well, he was worth more dead than he was alive, right? Keep reading, verses 3 through 5. While he was in Bethany, at the home of Simon the leper, and reclining at the table, there came a woman with an alabaster vial of very costly perfume of pure nard, and she broke the vial and poured it over his head. But some were indignantly remarking to one another, Why has this perfume been wasted? For this perfume might have been sold for over 300 denarii and the money given to the poor. And they were scolding her. I don't know about you, but I read that and I laugh. Because given the audience here, they weren't going to sell it and give it to the poor. That's just hilarious, right? But that's what they were kind of excusing or making the excuse of. But if you look at here again, what is Jesus worth? For this woman, it was worth pouring this very expensive perfume over Jesus' head because Jesus meant more and was worth more than the perfume and just being in the presence of Jesus was worth more than anything else in that moment. Look at verses 10 and 11. Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went off to the chief priest in order to betray him to them. They were glad when they heard this and promised to give him money, and he began seeking how to betray him at an opportune time. How much was Jesus worth to Judas? Thirty pieces of silver, to be exact, right? You keep reading, 30 and 31. And Jesus said to him, Truly I say to you that this very night, before a rooster crows twice, you yourself will deny me three times. But Peter kept saying insistently, Even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. And they were all saying the same thing also. So for Peter, for the rest of the apostles, 
Denial was not an option, at least in that moment. Jesus was worth everything to Peter and the apostles in that moment. He was worth dying for him in that moment, right? Verses 32 through 42 is Mark's account of Jesus praying in the Garden of Gethsemane. His soul was deeply grieved to the point of death, Luke's Gospel tells us. Peter, James, and John were there. How much was Jesus worth to them in that moment? Well, not more than sleep, right? Sleep meant more to them and was worth more than them to them in that moment as Jesus was grieved to the point of death, as his soul was anxious as he was thinking about the cross looming in the foreground. Peter, James, and John were asleep. Then, verses 43 through 52 tell of Judas's betrayal and the subsequent arrest of Jesus. We have this disgusting display where Judas comes up and kisses Jesus, which, by the way, would have been on the lips, open mouth, how disgusting that would be to signal that he was the one that he was handing over for that 30 pieces of silver. And what does Peter do in that moment? How much was Jesus worth to Peter in that moment? So much that he wields a sword and he cuts off Malchus's ear, right? Then you fast forward, and we see that Jesus' accusers don't think much of him. The high priest, all the chief priests, the elders, the scribes, the council, they all sought to obtain testimony against Jesus in order to justify the death penalty. Some of them even made up testimony to justify the death penalty. And then verses 64 and 65 read, And they all condemned him to be deserving of death. Some began to spit at him and to blindfold him and to beat him with their fist and to say to him, prophesy. And the officers received him with slaps in the face. Jesus wasn't worth much to them. Again, worth more dead than alive. Chapter 14 closes with what? With Peter denying Jesus three times. The same Peter who walked on water. The same Peter who boldly stood up in John chapter 6 and said, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of life. The same Peter who wielded a sword is now the Peter who denies Jesus three times. Because you see, when life and limb are at stake, Jesus doesn't mean as much. He's not worth as much. So, that's what we have going on in Mark chapter 14. It is a question of worth. How much is Jesus worth? It's a play, and the major characters, if you will, are Jesus, of course, and the chief priest, and the, the cohorts of the chief priest, an unnamed woman, Judas, and the other disciples. And the plot zeroes in on the value of Jesus. Some felt that he had no worth. Others felt that he was worth more dead than alive. Others, like the woman who wasted that alabaster vial of perfume by pouring it over his head, felt that Jesus had tremendous worth. Judas placed his value at 30 pieces of silver. Of course, actually, that was the price of his soul, wasn't it? And Peter and the rest of the disciples placed a premium on Jesus until following started to cost them something, right? So the question becomes, how much is Jesus worth to you? How much do you value our Lord? Let's switch gears for just a moment. Every religion has to answer two questions, doesn't it? Any religion, if it's going to be worth its salt, has to answer two questions. And how you answer those two questions means everything as far as buying in. No logical or reasonable person is going to buy in to a religion being legitimate unless it can answer logically and reasonably two questions. What is life? What is death? Right now, there are some religions 
that answer that question by saying life is karma, death is reincarnation. There are some religions that answer that question by saying life is about maintaining a scrupulous diet. It's about going on a pilgrimage. It's about praying three times a day. Death is about going to paradise. There are some that believe that life is about strapping a bomb to your chest and blowing yourself up as well as anybody else who doesn't agree with your religion. No person that is right thinking, that has... Uh, you know, that, that legitimately, honestly, reasonably, logically is going to buy into a religion if it can't answer these two questions in a logical, reasonable fashion, right? What is life? What is death? When I was living in Missouri, we were close to Branson, and they had all those theaters there, and there was this one comedian from Russia that was always, I thought, very funny. He's very clean, and uh, he, he told about his first trip to America. The first thing he did was he went to the grocery store, and he walked down the aisle, and he saw powdered milk, just add water, and he thought, wow. Then he saw powdered orange juice, just add water, and he thought, wow. Then he saw baby powder, and he thought, wow, what a country, right? <laughs> and I'm afraid that that some Christians have looked at Christianity the same way. Just add water and poof, you have a Christian, right? That it's easy. Instant Christianity, just add water. Too many in our society have seen religion from a consumerist mindset. Too many people look at religion as if it's, if it's something that, uh, that you just simply go to church, you, you pray, you, you read your Bible, and that's it. Nothing more really to it. Just do more good things than bad things, and you're going to be okay. But what is life? What is death? How does Christianity answer those two questions? Well, Paul gives a very simple summation. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. What is life? It's Christ. What is death? It's gain. Simply put, Christianity is about being like Jesus while you're here on earth, and when you die, you get to be with Jesus for all eternity. When we look at Christianity from that perspective, it makes a big difference, or it should, in our lives. Unfortunately, the Christian world as a whole, and even within the church, has become about proof-texting our way through the Bible. I don't know if you've noticed this, but it's all about plucking verses out of context, slapping them on a coffee mug or a bumper sticker, and letting that be our theology, right? I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. What does that mean? Well, it means that I can score a touchdown, I can hit a home run or whatever because Jesus is on my side, right? Or how about this one? Every graduation, this one comes out, Jeremiah 29, 11, For I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for calamity, to give you a future and a hope. We see this tattooed on people's body. We see it on graduation uh, announcements. This has nothing to do with you. It has nothing to do with your graduate. It has nothing to do with you at all. It's it's written to exiles in Babylon, some of who would not even see this prediction come to fruition, right? How about this one? And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. And we get from that, well, everything happens for a reason. And then you have this one. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. Unfortunately, there are many Christians who have turned the Bible into one-verse theology. And Americanized Christianity is rather selfish. It's based on consumerism. It's all about how church and religion and God and Jesus can serve me. And so it's rather natural that we would pluck verses out of context and slap them on our bumper sticker or slap them on you know, a coffee mug. 
But rather than looking at these like pithy little sayings, we need to dig deeper and understand the context and where Paul is coming from with this, right? And, and when we see Philippians 1.21 in the context or the narrative of which it fits, we need to wrap our minds around what he is actually saying. He's in prison. He is about to be beheaded. He is about to face the Roman emperor Nero. And here's what the first century historian Tacitus had to say about Nero. He said, besides being put to death, the Christians were made to serve as objects of amusement. They were clothed in the hides of beasts and torn to death by dogs. Others were crucified. Others were set on fire to serve to illuminate the night when daylight failed. Nero had thrown open his grounds for the display and was putting on a show and a circus where he mingled with the people in the dress of a charioteer and drove about in his chariot. All this gave rise to a feeling of pity. For it was felt that they, the Christians, were being destroyed, not for public good, but to gratify the cruelty of an individual. That's what Paul was staring in the face when he wrote this. This is what a life lived for Christ had brought Paul. It had brought him this. Yet he was able to confidently say, for to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Death was imminent. This is what happened when you live for Christ. Paul had made it his goal to be as close to Christ as possible, and death would accomplish that ultimate goal, wouldn't it? Because you can't be any closer to Jesus than when you're sitting at his side in eternity. And so Paul looked at death as a huge win. His head was on the chopping block, and that's when he valued Jesus the most. To him, it was priceless. His faith was worth losing everything including his life. Isn't it interesting that Paul views death very differently than many people in this world, many Christians, in fact? You know, we often see death as the worst possible fate imaginable. You live it up while you can because you're going to die and then it's all going to be over. But for Paul, life was about drawing closer and closer to Jesus, as close as he could get to him. He said, I want to even know the fellowship of your sufferings. What's that like? Because I want to be as close to you as possible. Because if it gets me where I'm trying to go, then it's all worth it, right? But here's what happens in American Christianity too often. We function in the realm of if only. If only I owned, fill in the blank. If only I had blank to love me, fill in the person. If only I could blank, fill in the accomplishment. If only I looked like, fill in the dream body or appearance. If only I could have blank amount of money, fill in the amount, right? We tend to operate in if only, and it's reflected in our prayer life. The things that we often ask for are reflected in these words, if only. The problem with if onlys is they don't deliver. They don't come through. Because you can change jobs, you can change spouses, you can change noses, you can change cities, but it doesn't fulfill, does it? PhDs don't fulfill. Initials at the end of your name don't truly fulfill. Eve was enamored with if only, wasn't she? Where did she live? In perfection. She lived in paradise, and yet she was still enamored with if only. Shouldn't that tell us something? If Eve couldn't be satisfied with perfection, that should tell us something. So instead of looking at life from the perspective of if only, we should look at life from the perspective of better than. 
Is knowing Jesus better than fill in the blank? And I don't care what you fill in the blank with, he is. Always. No matter what you fill in the blank with, he is always better than whatever it is that goes in the blank. Always. How many of you have seen the movie The Passion of the Christ? Came out in 2003. Some of you probably never even heard of it. Mel Gibson directed this movie. It was very well done. And he got the part uh, of Jesus to be played by Jim Caviezel. Maybe you've heard of that name. He called and offered the role of Jesus to Jim Caviezel, who readily accepted. And 20 minutes later, Mel Gibson called him back to try to talk him out of it. He tried to talk him out of it because he said, if you accept this role, you'll never work in Hollywood again. You're talented, you need work, and, and you'll never work again if you take this role. And if you notice, you hadn't heard much about Jim Caviezel since then. But he said, you know what? We all have our crosses to bear. Caviezel also said this. He said, we all have to embrace our crosses. He then added, Jesus is as controversial now as he ever has been. Not much has changed in 2,000 years. Caviezel speaks at, at churches. And he says, we have to give up our names, our reputations, our lives to speak the truth. In other words, for Jim Caviezel, his faith in Jesus was worth more than fame and fortune. Jesus was better than the accolades and the riches that come with fame and fortune. But here's the challenge for all of us. The challenge is taking what sounds good in theory and making application out of it, right? Because all of us know the problem. In fact, as I'm going over this, you may be sitting there rolling your eyes and thinking to yourself, okay, we got it, Chris. We understand. We're not measuring up. Read the Bible more. Pray more. Come to church more. We got it. And listen, I sympathize with you because I understand the eye rolls. I understand that we know the issue. But nothing gets done about it. Have you noticed that? I mean, you'd think the more we talked about it, the better it would get, but it doesn't. And so we do have to address it, right? We do have to address what it means to be a Christian living in this century. We do have to address what it means to be a disciple. And we do have to address the, the misconceptions that we have about discipleship. Because this isn't always going to be easy. It's not going to be comfortable or convenient. And you know what? Nobody ever said it would be. The Bible certainly doesn't. Jesus certainly doesn't say, come and follow me and everything will work out fine and life will be a bowl of cherries. Everything will be rainbows and unicorns if you just follow me. You'll skip everywhere whistling, uh, uh, don't worry, be happy. No, that's, that's not what the Bible teaches. In fact, if anything, Jesus guaranteed quite the opposite, right? Here's something that we need to understand, that we desperately need to wrap our minds and our hearts around, and it's this. This is war. You understand that, don't you? This is war. We are engaged in a spiritual battle, and quite frankly, the devil isn't having to work very hard. There are many people, many Christians, who are walking around on the battlefield as if they're at the county fair. They don't even pay attention that there is a battle going on. When you were baptized into Christ, you also enlisted in an army. We've got to fight. Too many Christians aren't even fighting. In fact, many of them are trying to wear two uniforms, a uniform in the world and a uniform that, for Christ. That's not how this works. You've got to recognize the enemy and recognize that there is a fight going on. All too often we fight among ourselves. We're good at that. 
We're good at splitting churches and fighting amongst each other, and the devil sits back and laughs. He doesn't have to do anything, right? Or we hunker down and try to survive. Why aren't we attacking? What says we have to just sit back, hunker down, and hope that the devil passes by? How about we get up and fight? How about we attack him on the front lines? See, we're not doing that because we're not even recognizing that there is a war going on. And all the while, we're being defeated. So it starts there. We have to recognize that there is a battle for our soul, and the devil isn't having to do too much to get it. There are casualties of war all around us, and we're stepping over bodies without ever even recognizing that something is happening that is detrimental to our soul. So I believe this all starts not with going to church more or praying more or reading your Bible more, although I can't discredit those things. I believe this all starts with a paradigm shift in our thinking to realize that this is a battle. This is the fight of our lives. This is war. Remember those two questions. What is life? What is death? How does Christianity answer those questions? How does the world answer those questions? The world answered those two questions, and if the world is a religion, which it is, many have bought into the religion of the world. If the world is a religion, what does it say in answering those two questions? It says, well, life is instant gratification, right? It's all about living it up because tomorrow you die, and when you die, you just cease to exist, and you become worm dirt, right? Or you go to heaven anyway. Everybody goes to heaven when they die in, in, based on the world's perspective, right? That sounds pretty appealing. I get to live my life any way I choose. I get instant gratification. And when I die, I go to heaven or I just cease to exist. So I'm going to make it count while I'm here. But there's a problem with that, right? And the problem is that everyone is going to take a last breath. And then what? The world doesn't have an answer for that. Christianity does. Christianity says if you live your life in Christ, you get to spend your eternity with Jesus. I think that's the problem that we deal with too often. Is that we're not thinking eternally. We're not realizing that this is a fight for our lives, a battle for our soul, that lives are on the line. You know, I've been told that when Soldiers who fight for our country come back home. They have a difficult time reintegrating. Because when they were in battle, they understood who the enemy was. They knew exactly what the mission was. They knew what they were doing. The goal was clear. You're protecting our freedom. You're fighting for your country. And then they come home and they work a nine-to-five job or pass out bulletins in the church. And it's like, I struggle with what I'm supposed to be and what I'm supposed to do. I think as Christians, we have to understand that there is a definite goal. It should be very clear what side we're on and the fight that we're fighting. We have an enemy. It's not the government. It's not each other. It's the devil, right? Always. Remember that. Keep him in your crosshairs. He's got you in his crosshairs. Keep him in your crosshairs, and let's fight this fight of our lives. Paul said, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Look, I know you want to go to heaven. You wouldn't be here this morning if you didn't. I know that you want to be a better person. I know that you want to be all in. So I, I, I don't mean to suggest that any of you here this morning aren't trying hard enough or not doing enough. 
I just simply want to remind you what this is all about. This is not just about coming and singing the songs that you want to sing and hearing an uplifting sermon or, or getting something out of worship, right? This is war. This is a battle. And I would suggest this to you. When I was coaching, there would be times, especially that first year, we weren't very good. We'd be down by 20, 30 points. And I'd tell the kids, look, you can't, get, you can't make a 30-point basket. That's not possible. Don't try to get it all back at once. Chip away. Let's just do the things we know we're supposed to be doing, and we'll chip away at it. And hopefully by the end of it, we've reduced the lead down to, you know, 10 or, or 5 or whatever, and now we're, in, now we're in, in the game again. You can't win the battle against the, against the devil in one attack. Understand that. The devil's like a bad case of athlete's foot. He just keeps coming back. And so you can't win the battle with just one attack. It's something that you have to do day by day incrementally so that when you get up in the morning, you ask God, please help me. Help me today to fight this battle and to win the day. If you give me another day, I'll worry about that one when you give it to me. But for today, give me the strength to fight the battle and to win. Just today, right? And then you'll worry about the next day if it comes. You see, here's what happens. When we look at discipleship, we think about it like a $1,000 bill, and we put it on the table, and we say, here, Jesus, I'm all in. This is all I've got. I've given you all. When really we need to think about it like this, we need to think about it like Jesus giving us that $1,000 back and saying, go to the bank and cash it in for all quarters. And then day by day, you just give a quarter. Day by day, here and there, incrementally, you're giving out quarters, right? You teach a Bible class when you really don't have the time. At least you think. You, uh, you stop and help a homeless person when you really don't want to get involved. You go to the nursing home or the hospital to visit somebody uh, that you know would like to have visitors, even though that's very uncomfortable for you. And here and there, you're just dropping in quarters incrementally. It's not about putting it all in at once and saying, okay, I've done my job. I'm all in. No, it's incrementally, little by little, day by day. This is a marathon, not a sprint. You've heard that a billion times, right? So you don't defeat Satan in one attack. It's a sustained effort, right? As we close, I want you to pretend something with me. I want you to pretend that you work for me. That's a stretch, isn't it? I want you to pretend that I am the CEO of a major company and we are growing. And I am leaving the country to go and to establish a branch somewhere overseas. But before I leave, I leave you in charge. And I give you precise instructions as to how the day-to-day -day operations are to be run. And while I'm away, every week I send you a letter. Reiterating what I've already told you and giving you more instruction, right? After months of being gone, I come home. And I walk up to the office building and there's weeds growing up around it. There's even some windows broken out by the road. I walk inside, the place hasn't been cleaned since I left, the wastebaskets are overflowing with trash, there's junk all over the floors. I walk in and I say, you know, where are you? You know, the guy that's supposed to be covering for me while I'm gone. And the receptionist says, I don't know, he's around here somewhere. And so I walk down to your office and you're playing checkers and watching TV with one of the other employees and I say, hey, can I talk to you for a minute? And so I take you into my office, which has been turned into a smoking lounge, and we sit down and I say to you, what are you doing? And if it's Randy, Randy goes, what do you mean, what am I doing? I say, didn't you, 
didn't you hear what I told you before I left? Didn't you get my instructions? And you say, yeah. I said, didn't you get my letters that I sent week in and week out? And you say, oh, yeah, I got your letters. And you know what? Every Friday we got together and we read your letter. As an office staff, we got together every Friday and we read your letter. We meditated upon your letter. Some of us even memorized your letter. Aren't you proud of us? I say, okay, but... So you read the letter, you knew what was in the letter, you memorized the letter, some of you even. What did you do about it? And you say, do? What do you mean do? We didn't do anything. I hope you understand where I'm going with that illustration. To live is Christ and to die is gain. You probably know that verse. You probably heard it before. Some of you have committed it to memory. What are you doing about it? And don't say do. What, what do you mean what am I doing about it? Nothing. You got to do something with it. You got to do something with every piece of scripture, especially this one. For to me to live is Christ, to die is gain. I don't mean slapping it on your coffee mug or, or on a shirt or on your bumper. What's interesting about that verse is the three words that precede it, right? For to me. This was personal for Paul. Paul was all in. He said, this is me. This is my personal conviction. This is where I stand. And this is where I'll be standing on the day of eternity. I'm all in for to me. To live is Chris, right? No, it's not what it says. To live is Christ. Because this isn't about you. There's great benefit in it for you, but this isn't about you. This isn't about what the church can do for me. This isn't about what God or Jesus can do for me. This is about what we can accomplish on the battlefield day to day with Christ working in us. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. And so, when our consumer mindset says, well, I, I didn't get anything out of church this morning. I love Jesus, but I hate the church. Or God just wants me to be happy. Or church is full of hypocrites. All those statements are rendered null and void because this isn't about that. This is about Jesus. To live is Christ. To live is Christ. To die is gain. This isn't about what you can get. This is about what you can give. Therefore, stop allowing excuses. Stop allowing other people. Stop allowing a consumer mindset to dictate your commitment level. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. So, live for him now so that you can live with him for eternity, right? No more excuses. You're a soldier, not an excuse maker. Let's fight, right? If you have a need that we can help you with this morning, if you have been wounded in battle, maybe you're a child of God and you're a casualty of war and you need the prayers and support of this church family, or maybe you're wounded by the devil, you're not even in the Lord's army and you're ready to, to make that decision this morning, let us help you with that as well. Don't leave here this morning without picking up a sword and being ready to fight. You can't be Switzerland here. You can't be neutral. You've got to pick a side. Come now as we stand and as we sing.